People were drawn to the area for that type of seclusion, that, that peace, that being in the country. And so when this happened to Larry Lee, it was one of those deals where people moved to these places to escape, in a sense, the realities of the world. Nothing's going to happen to my daughter, to my son, to, to me in particular, if I live in some place like this. And then on that day, the things that people tried to escape came to their front door. That was Sergeant A.J. Paglieri talking to me about the slaying of Lara Lee Spear, a 15-year-old high school freshman who was killed near her DeLand area home 25 years ago. The case still remains unsolved. That story is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter with the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at some of Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss one of the highest profile cold cases in Volusia County history, the 1994 murder of Lara Lee Spear. The teen was killed after stepping off her school bus outside the land. 90 minutes after getting off that bus, her body was found behind a nearby burned-out house about 200 yards from her home. A man was indicted in her murder and was months away from standing trial before the prosecutor in the case dropped all charges. My special guest for that segment will be Volusia County Sheriff Sergeant A.J. Paglieri, as well as Sheriff's Detective Steve White cold case investigator Ralph Henshaw and retired DeLand police captain Pete Moon. But first, I'll discuss the arrest of a suspected serial rapist at Daytona Beach, a man who has been linked to seven sexual battery cases across Daytona and Holly Hill. I'm glad he's off the streets today. We'll have no more victims. Thank God the great work of my detectives and the aggressive follow-up and the aggressive manhunt for this, this suspect to move him off the streets. A homeless man in Daytona Beach is behind bars on a sexual battery charge in connection with a savage attack on a female bicyclist last August. According to Daytona Beach Police Chief Craig Capri, who you just heard from, the same suspect has been linked to as many as seven sexual batteries across the region. 44-year-old Marquise Sean Martin is a convicted felon who has been in and out of prison for a decade. Now he's behind bars without bail on a charge that carries a life sentence. Capri said Martin could face many more charges of sexual battery as detectives continue to work the case. Sergeant Kelsey Harris, an investigator with the Daytona Beach Police Department, told me after Friday's news conference that Martin has been linked to seven rapes, one in 2010, two in 2014, one in 2017, and two in 2018, in addition to the one in Holly Hill. Martin was booked Friday afternoon at the Volusia County Branch Jail on one count of sexual battery. That charge is in connection with one of the reported rapes from 2018. In that case, Martin came upon a female riding her bicycle in the 200 block of North Peninsula Drive, which is in Daytona's beachside. 
A police report stated the female was approached by Martin, who offered her assistance with the bike. Her brakes had locked up on her. Police said the female turned down Martin's offer, at which time he offered her some crack cocaine. She turned that offer down, and that's when Martin attacked her, according to police. The report stated that the woman was grabbed by the throat, thrown to the ground, dragged to another location, and raped. Police said Martin threatened to stab her if she resisted. After the attack was over, the suspect tried to fix the woman's bicycle. He apologized to her and walked with her to another intersection on the beachside. Police said Martin eventually wandered away from her and she ran to get help. Detectives matched the DNA collected during the investigation to Martin. Like I said, we got the, the, the lab report came back in in December of uh, 21st, 2018, and the matches came in. We got the notification about two days ago. Since then, we, we, when they all linked together through CODIS, we did a manhunt looking for this, this suspect. He's a homeless person, and we hit the streets looking for him. We were able to track him down today. So uh, we interviewed him, and he has confessed to the rape, uh, and, and he's, he's pretty much uh, graphic in some of his details and some of the details that he gave forward. Capri said Martin described it this way to detectives. He would offer his victims drugs, and if they refused the deal, he would have to get rough with them. The chief conveyed his frustration with regards to Martin's arrest on suspicion of sexual battery in 2014. When he was convicted the following year, he was sentenced to 37 months in prison. Capri felt that was too light of a sentence. The whole of the victim, it destroys them for life. They're scarred with this for life. And this guy gets 37 months to come back on the streets and do it again. So I feel very confident now. We're going to do everything we can to let the judges know, let the state attorneys know, the prosecutors, that we need to put this guy away forever. He doesn't need to be on the streets. Court documents show Martin was convicted on an amended charge of aggravated battery with intent to harm. That led to a shorter sentence, and it also meant he avoided a sex offender designation. Capri said if Martin had been a registered sex offender, he would have been more closely monitored and likely would not have raped so many victims. Spencer Hathaway, a spokesman with the state attorney's office in the Seventh Judicial Circuit, sent an email to me late Friday night in response to Capri's statements. Hathaway said his office made, quote, exhaustive efforts to locate the victim in the case. They tried phone calls, in-person visits to family members, letters, and old-fashioned canvassing. They weren't able to find her. Hathaway wrote to me, quote, with our inability to have live testimony of the victim for prosecution purposes, there was insufficient evidence to dispel a consent defense. In other words, there was insufficient evidence to prosecute him for his original charge of sexual battery. Hathaway added that the prosecutor in the case did everything possible to resolve the case short of dropping the charges. Capri on Friday said police reached out to the victim from the August 2018 rape to let her know her attacker had been arrested. The victim in the 2018 rape was traumatized to the point the detective even remembered how, how it's emotionally affected. We have since reached out to her, told her what we have done, and she's extremely pleased at this point in time. Uh, relief that this guy is no longer on the streets. He's been taken into custody. 
Martin has been charged with a total of 44 crimes. 22 of those crimes were felonies. His record also includes a total of 15 convictions. Coming up, the story of the unsolved case of Larry Spear. It was clear and sunny the afternoon of April 26, 1994, when Lara Lee Spear got off her school bus. It would have been a perfect day for the 15-year-old to take her time walking home from her stop, which she often did. Lara Lee stepping off her bus and walking down Deerfoot Road was a regular sight for those who lived along that rural dirt trail. Up to a half dozen homes were located along that half-mile section of road. Lara Lee would sometimes stop at a neighbor's house and pet the horses. The short walk from her bus stop to her home took anywhere from five to ten minutes. Her mother would be home waiting for her. On this day, after 30 minutes of waiting, Barbara Spear went looking for her daughter. There was no sign of Lara Lee anywhere on Deerfoot Road so she called law enforcement. Steve White is a 32-year veteran of the Volusia County Sheriff's Office. He is in charge of the agency's cold case unit. Here he is describing to me the area of Volusia County where Lara Lee and her family lived and the unlikelihood that such a violent crime could happen there. I think the thing that sticks out is it was a part of the county that is quiet, reserved. These people picked this location to live for the peace and quiet it afforded them. The fact that it was not on a main road. They, how many people live on a dirt road? How many people have horses in their backyard? That's why they were out there. This child got off the bus at 3.15 and at 5.30 we find her. That is a very short time span. And we know that it happened quicker than that. That's just unbelievable to me that it could happen in that location so fast with a, a child who's not involved in any activities that would put her in danger or, or close to danger or risky behavior at all. Lara Lee was found dead behind an abandoned, burned-out house near her home about 90 minutes after her feet touched the dirt at her bus stop. The empty house, which was hidden from the road by some woods, was located about 200 yards from Lara Lee's home on Deerfoot, an east-west residential road that intersects with US-17 to the east. Lara Lee's house is less than four miles southwest of the heart of Deland, the county seat of Volusia. It's often referred to as the Athens of Florida because of its inviting downtown and its college atmosphere. The land also is the home of Stetson University. Pete Moon was born and raised in DeLand, worked more than 29 years as a police officer in his hometown, and still lives there. He still chooses to live in DeLand because he loves the tranquility and sense of community that exists there. Having grown up in DeLand, and been in the land my whole life. It was a small, quaint town. Pretty much everybody knew everybody or some family member of someone. Pretty tight-knit community. Downtown's always been the center hub of the city. You know, in, in the 80s and early 90s, there wasn't what I would say the 
nightlife as there is today, but it still drew the community to a central gathering location. Ralph Henshaw spent 17 years in law enforcement, working for agencies in Volusia, Lake, and Miami-Dade counties. He retired in 1999, but he volunteers as a cold case investigator at the sheriff's office, where he'd previously been employed. Here he is talking to me about how Lara Lee's killer must have been familiar with the lay of the land. Whoever did this obviously knew the area well. Yeah, I would say that they knew where that house was. Whoever whoever done that knew where that quiet uh, place would be. You could go back in there and nobody would see you. I talked to the neighbor that lives closest. He hadn't got home yet, uh, you know, at that time of day. Uh, he, when he got home, the helicopter was already over the property. So he wouldn't have heard a gunshot. and. Gunshots in that particular area were pretty common. There was a man up the street at a firing range in his backyard. And then across the street where the park is now, the county has a park there. Back there by the railroad trestle and all, people used to go there all the time target practicing. So the people who lived close by were used to hearing firearms. You know, they, they weren't, it wasn't something you'd notice. Deerfoot Road wasn't paved. It was narrow and not driven on very often. The only people who used the road were those who lived on it or were visiting someone living on it. Moon said the area of Deerfoot feels so secluded, it seemed impossible 25 years ago to think any violent aspect of the outside world could infiltrate it. More middle class, hardworking people lived in that area, and, and crime was just not there as it could be in other areas. And this is kind of cliche, but people who lived there kept their doors unlocked. They never had a worry in the world that something bad was going to happen to them. That's right. And in the early 90s, it was kind of common practice. You really didn't concern yourself with you know closing your windows at night or factually locking your doors. The walk from the bus stop to the spear home cuts through a thick patch of trees, so the road had a section that was very dark. Anyone who walked through that part of Deerfoot Road was not exactly in plain view, even in broad daylight. On any given day, someone was likely to see Lara Lee getting off her bus. On that day, someone did. Here again is Ralph Henshaw. She got uh, the bus driver seen her get off. She didn't seem to have any problem. There was nobody around the area, strange. Uh, she walked into Deerfoot Road. Uh, there was people selling uh, plants there at the corner. They had a little fernery and uh, nursery. nursery deal. Uh, they were selling plants. They watched her walk by. They didn't notice any vehicles at the time. She walked by like she did every day, every school day. and. Uh, nobody's seen her after that. So she was seen by these folks yes. at the nursery. Right. Um, and this is um, this is a road, just a just straightaway road? It's, it's not a windy road? It's a dirt road. Uh, it's very narrow. Uh, it, most places, cars can't pass each other. You have to wait for one to go down, and the other one, you'd have to pull in the driveway or something to pass. And uh, at that time, there was probably six or seven houses on the street. 
He also told me on that particular afternoon, there was at least one fewer set of eyes staring at the road compared to most days. One of the other neighbors uh, was in a wheelchair. Um, He was completely disabled. He he couldn't walk. He would generally be sitting out front, you know, on his front porch or the front window. You know, this beautiful scenery there. And he would notice her going by this particular day. He wasn't feeling well. He didn't see her walk by. Nobody else on the street seen her, uh, you know, walk down the street. Lara Lee had been shot several times. She was found lying on a slab of concrete. It was less than a half mile from her bus stop on South Spring Garden Road. As reported by the News Journal in one of its first stories about the murder, the chronology went like this. Lara Lee Spear got off her school bus at 3.15 p.m. on Spring Garden at the corner of Deerfoot. At 4.05, Barbara Spear, Lara Lee's mother, reports her daughter missing to the Volusia County Sheriff's Office. Eight minutes later, deputies are sent to Lara Lee's home. Eight minutes after that, deputies arrive and start searching the immediate area. At 4.59, deputies in Air One, the sheriff's office's helicopter, join the search party. At 5.35, one of the Air One deputies spots a body near the burnt-out house. Those on the ground were directed to the body. They confirmed it was Lara Lee Spear. During the next few days, so many of the sheriff's office's resources were dedicated to investigating the girl's murder. If a detective worked on the east side of the county, there was a good chance he or she was reassigned to DeLand to work on the Spear case, at least for a short time. One of those detectives was Steve White. When she was found, I had already gotten off shift. So when I came into, I heard about it on the news, and I came into work the next morning, it was grab your stuff, your TDY to the land until they release you. So my office, the Orman office, we all got together and went over to the land and got our assignments. We did the neighborhood canvas for a week. You guys average, maybe average double-digit homicides per year here in Volusia County? Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, Uh so that's probably not the case with every homicide, is it? Where? No. So this was an unusual one. Most unusual, um, 14-year-old child walking home from school. Uh, horrific. Investigators were told by Lara Lee's mother that it was out of character for the girl to wander off by herself. They concluded very early in the investigation that someone intercepted her and took her to where her body was found. It was estimated by one of the lead detectives that Lara Lee had walked just 200 yards before coming in contact with her killer, and she was dead within 25 minutes of getting off her bus. Lots of stories were told about that abandoned house, including that it was a popular site for drunks and drug addicts. It has been described by some to be a party house, or more specifically, a drug party house. Those stories weren't true, according to Henshaw and White. That part of town did not attract that type of crowd. Yeah, I I would have to disagree with that. I I don't think that was a party place. Um, I don't think a whole lot of people knew it was there. The crime scene would show you that there was uh, 
there wasn't parties going on. There was no empty beer cans, bottles, uh, things like that that you would find. Um, I, I think the uh, there was signs of, uh, of of a vehicle doing donuts out there, which we don't know if that had anything to do with the homicide or not. Um, there was people out there that had four-wheelers that rode around the neighborhood. Um, I, you know, but as far as it being a place for druggies and all that stuff, uh, th- there was the no indication trash. of that. Yeah. Didn't have that kind of trash you'd associate with players. The students at DeLand High School, where Lara Lee was a freshman, were in shock over the news of the girl's murder. Many of the students hadn't heard about it until the next morning, when their first period teachers read a prepared statement provided by the school's administration. Not much information has been released about the crime scene. Investigators want to keep it that way in case they interview someone who discloses more about the scene than has been reported. That's often a surefire sign of guilt. There's a delicate balancing act in a case like this. Detectives want to get information out to people, not just the media, but also to neighboring police agencies. Pete Moon, who was a DeLand patrol officer and part of a regional narcotics task force at the time of the killing, recalls overhearing some discussions about what to be on the lookout for. He wasn't directly involved with the Spear case, but information was definitely being shared. Sheriff's Office had established a task force uh, specifically assigned to the Spears investigation. And there was continuous information being shared throughout the law enforcement community. Of course, there's information that, that at that moment they probably couldn't share with us, but any they were reaching out to the local agencies. You know, we were we were approaching informants and such that we had cultivated or knew of trying to seek out information on the suspect uh, and was sharing that information back and forth if there's anything learned. Detectives have confirmed that Lara Lee was shot, but they declined to say how many times or where on her body. They also never said what kind of gun was used. The girl's book bag was found at the scene. Investigators have never said what else they recovered. News reports later stated that Lara Lee's hands were bound and her clothing was ripped. Witnesses told the sheriff's office that a black lowrider pickup was seen in the vicinity around the estimated time of the murder. The driver was described as a white male with sandy blonde hair just below the ears. He could have been in his late teens or early 20s. It was the kind of specific information detectives like to get, but it led nowhere. One of the reasons Henshaw and others are so closely connected to the case is because of how much people loved and admired the victim. Lara Lee was an A student and a member of the Kiets, a school service organization. She was a cheerleader, sang in her church choir, and played piano. By all accounts, she was a smart, wholesome girl with unlimited potential. Her principal called her a model student. I'd say she was an exceptional young lady. She was a good student, very well, very polite, well liked by her friends. Um, she was punctual. Somebody you could say uh, she'll be here at eight o'clock. She's here at eight o'clock. Uh, she would uh, 
The best we know, she never had a boyfriend, never dated, close to home with her family. Lara Lee's parents, David and Barbara, were out of town and unavailable for an interview for this podcast. In the past, they've granted very few interviews. Henshaw told me he still remains in contact with Lara Lee's family. The Spears were new to DeLand when Lara Lee was murdered. The mother is still uh, suffering from her daughter's loss. I spent a lot of time talking to her dad uh, two weeks ago. Uh, he's still mystified as to who and why and, uh, you know, how could this have happened in this nice, quiet little neighborhood that they just moved into. So they had just moved here from Seminole County. She had changed they, schools. They had just built a house. They were building a house for about a year. They were, manif- you know, working on that house, and they had moved in there. Uh, I think it was September of '93. They finally moved into the house. She started school at Deland High. The story of the slaying 25 years ago captured a lot of headlines. Larry Lee's funeral was covered by the media. The service was attended by nearly 400 people. Even those who did not attend school with Larry Lee or had never met her were affected in some way by the news. Volusia County Sheriff Sergeant A.J. Paglieri, who works in the agency's major case unit, was a 14-year-old boy attending Spruce Creek High School when the news broke about Larry Lee. He learned a lot about it through his father who worked for the sheriff's office. I was doing the math this morning. I think I was 13 or I was 14 years old. Where were you living? I lived in Port Orange. I was a student at Spruce Creek High School at the time um, when this happened. She's your age, basically. Yeah, Yeah, she was close, close to my age group. Do you remember this happening? I recall it only because my father, who works for the sheriff's office and still works for the sheriff's office, um, he told me about it. Uh, and it was a big deal because not very often does something like this happen in the United States, especially in the 90s like that. But something like that doesn't happen here in Volusia County. And so I would walk home from school and I lived close to Spruce Creek High School. And I'd get in my day and then just like I said, come on home. And that's all Larry Lee was doing. Larry Lee was getting off her bus. She was going home. And then she encountered evil. There had been many stories across Florida about girls being killed at their bus stops or during their walks home from school. I've profiled a few of them on this podcast. The 1993 slaying of Jennifer Odom near Brooksville and the June 1973 disappearance of Susan Bastille, who was suspected of being murdered by serial killer Gerald Stano. I also profiled the September 1978 murder of Carol Lynn Sullivan, a 12-year-old girl from Osteen who was abducted and beheaded by her killer. That case also has gone unsolved, and it has similarities to the Spear case. It happened in a remote rural area of Volusia County. The girls were abducted near their school bus stops, and both of them had only lived in Volusia for a short time. They were both originally from Seminole County. Very little about the Lara Lee Spear case was being disclosed to the media, but law enforcement officers received more than 350 tips in that first week after the killing. In less than a month, that number increased to more than 1,000. One of the lead investigators in 1994 
told the News Journal that the killer was not particularly organized or talented. The same investigator refused to say whether he suspected the murderer had killed before. Eventually, a profile of the killer was described to the media. It was created by agents from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. The person who killed Lara Lee Spear was likely withdrawn. He thought to have been a DeLand resident or at least familiar with the immediate area. He may have had an emotional age of someone in his 20s. Some of the other characteristics were fairly obvious. He was quick-tempered, spontaneous, inexperienced. Investigators also said the killer may have recently obtained a handgun, so he could have been known to brag about the gun and flash it around in front of his friends. He may also have had an obsession with news reports about the case. Perhaps he left the area without warning. Detectives also said they suspected the killer randomly selected his victim. Lara Lee, as far as they knew, was not being stalked by anyone. On May 31, 1994, David and Barbara Spear sent a videotaped message to the media. It was the first time they had spoken publicly about their daughter's murder. David Spear said on the tape in part, quote, Our daughter, Lara Lee Spear, was killed just a little over a month ago as she was walking home from the school bus stop about a half a mile from her house. She was 15 years old. Since that time, the outpouring of support from the community has been overwhelming, and we want to take this opportunity to express our gratitude to all those people who have sent cards and wished us well, either by cards or flowers or their prayers. He thanked people for coming forward and urged anyone else to come forward if they see or hear anything suspicious. The Spears allowed only one television cameraman into their home to record that statement. David Spear was the only one who spoke. He paused at least once to maintain his composure. Barbara Spear wept after her husband finished speaking. The same day that statement was given, then-Volusia County Sheriff Bob Vogel told the media there had been no breaks in the case up to that point. He said he hoped that footage of the parents speaking into a camera might encourage someone with information to come forward. Many more people did call law enforcement, but those leads were like the previous 1,000. They did not move the investigation forward. People were calling the sheriff's office over the most trivial matters. They were told to report anything unusual, so they did. It was probably an indication of just how anxious people were in and around the land. Pete Moon remembers how the complexion of the community had changed in the immediate days and weeks after the murder. I can tell you that instantly people were uh, on edge, concerned, just because of the uniqueness of the area and where it occurred. Then came a long-awaited break. The scope of the investigation narrowed significantly in November 1994. An inmate at the Volusia County Branch Jail emerged as a person of interest. Investigators zeroed in on him. The inmate was Bobby Allen Raleigh, who was jailed and awaiting trial for gunning down two Dillion Springs men as they slept in their trailer. Raleigh and his accomplice, Domingo Figueroa, killed the two victims over a drug debt. The murder happened June 5, 1994, nearly six weeks after Lara Lee Spear was slain. 
Dillion Springs is 10 miles northwest of Deerfoot Road. Raleigh, who was 20 years old at the time, became a suspect based on the fact that he lived close to the Spear House, and also because a fellow inmate of his reported that he heard Raleigh discuss the case. The more that inmate talked, the more convinced prosecutors were. Other inmates also came forward with information, according to reports at the time. Raleigh wound up on death row for the murders of those two men in Dillion Springs. The two victims were Douglas Cox and Timothy Eberlin. Cox had reportedly fought with Raleigh and Figueroa at a Deland bar hours before he was killed. Raleigh claimed Cox had struck his mother during the fight. Not only that, but Cox was $17,000 in the hole to a Seminole County drug ring that Raleigh and Figueroa were thought to be involved in. After the bar closed on June 5th, both Raleigh and Figueroa fetched some guns and showed up at the victim's home. With a gun in his hand, Raleigh went to the front door of Cox's trailer. Someone inside the trailer came to the door and told Raleigh that Cox was sleeping. Raleigh and Figueroa drove down a nearby road and parked the car. They waited a while and then returned to the trailer. They decided they weren't going to knock this time. Raleigh walked around the back, entered the house, and shot Cox three times in the head at close range. Figueroa and Raleigh both opened fire on Eberlin, who was Cox's roommate. They fired their guns until they jammed. The bullets weren't enough to kill Eberlin, who started screaming. Raleigh pistol-whipped Eberlin until he was quiet, and Eberlin died from those injuries. Raleigh and Figueroa burned their clothes and hid their weapons, but eventually they admitted to committing the murders and were charged. Raleigh remains on death row for the double murder, while Figueroa is serving life in prison. Seven months after Lara Lee Spear was killed, a grand jury began hearing evidence against Raleigh, who prosecutors described at the time as a, quote, solid suspect. The jury reconvened in December, and Raleigh was indicted. When the news broke about Raleigh's indictment, then-State Attorney Steve Alexander said Raleigh did not know Lara Lee, but the prosecutor told the media that many people had seen Raleigh watching cheerleading practices and circling near the girls in his pickup truck. Alexander told the News Journal, quote, I think it's fair to say that he knew who everybody was on the junior varsity cheerleading team. Whether it was his intention to specifically go after Lara Lee, we can't tell at this time. In the same article, Alexander said, quote, Obviously, we don't have an eyewitness to the murder, but a number of witnesses have put together a very strong, circumstantial case. When all the evidence comes together, it paints a nice painting of what happened. It was also learned that investigators went to Virginia to seize Raleigh's truck. He hid that pickup with relatives in Virginia shortly after Lara Lee was killed, according to the state attorney's office. In spite of everything being put out there, there was something about Raleigh that was hard not to notice. He seemed resigned to his fate with regards to the double murder in Dillion Springs, but he was adamant he had nothing to do with Lara Lee Spears' murder. 
Not only that, but investigators were open and honest from the start about the lack of physical evidence connecting Raleigh to the crime. It wasn't because of a lack of trying. Every acre in and around Deerfoot Road was combed. Search parties looked far and wide for footprints, shell casings, or any other clues. One investigator told the News Journal on the one-year anniversary of the killing that Raleigh was an enigma. Raleigh and Lara Lee had never met, and they certainly weren't part of the same social circles. Investigators also wouldn't talk about what they found inside Raleigh's truck, the one they brought back from Virginia. People started to think there was nothing in there of value related to the case. In fact, witnesses who saw the vehicle on Deerfoot the afternoon of Spears' murder described it as a black Ford. Raleigh's pickup was a dark blue Mitsubishi. Raleigh was sentenced to die in 1996 for the double murder in Dillion Springs. That same year, a new state attorney was elected to take over the Seventh Judicial Circuit. He had a conflict of interest in the Spear case, so prosecutors in the Fifth Judicial Circuit took it over. In 1998, those prosecutors decided to drop the charges against Raleigh. It was later reported the man may have had an airtight alibi all along. When the murder happened, Raleigh was miles away from Deerfoot Road getting work done on his truck. The very same truck that investigators originally thought may have been his getaway vehicle. In any situation like this, it's impossible to erase all traces of suspicion. Raleigh is forever linked to the Spear case, even though it seems clear he wasn't the culprit. Here are Paglieri and Henshaw talking to me about whether they have any lingering suspicions about Raleigh. I don't look at him as a suspect at all. Uh, Sergeant Paglieri and I interviewed him at Florida State Prison a few years ago um, extensively. And Pag. I would say that, um, again, this is before my time, so I don't know too much about it. But from talking to Ralph, Steve, um, at this point, there there was not enough then to pursue him uh, criminally. And there's nothing that has changed since that time to make us think that he is uh, at the top of any particular person of interest list. You see what I'm saying? So either forensically or his his alibi of where he was, nothing has seemed to have changed since that that uh, since we pursued that as an agency towards Bobby. Um, and so he is again, I would say, back in the list of the other. I don't know where, where are we. At? I mean, almost 60, 70 people yeah. that we've run down in terms of DNA collection or uh, possible persons of interest because we don't know. I mean, if we knew who it was, then we'd be talking about a different case. But he's just backing that that list of others. He's not uh, particularly higher or lower than anyone. He's just in that clump. I think that's safe to say. Would you agree, Ralph, Steve? Yeah. Something to have to come up that we don't have to make him a suspect any more than he was to begin with. As you just heard Paglieri say, Raleigh is one of more than five dozen people who have been investigated in relation to this crime during the past 25 years. Here again is Steve White. I pursued 
60 some odd people as possible that we have cleared. Mm-hmm. I think that is a great testament to the people that have been here over the years. Uh, we've run down every tip, every lead, everything they ever came through. Eliminating information and eliminating persons is just as important because now we can move forward and somebody says, oh, I heard that Johnny Brown did it. Well, we looked at Johnny Brown two years ago. We know he didn't do it. We know where he was. That kind of information is also valuable. While it doesn't push the case forward to a conclusion, it eliminates the extraneous stuff that allows you to concentrate and keep going forward. The area where the sheriff's office's cold case detectives work contains a small storage space, roughly the size of a walk-in closet. All the shelves contain stacks of boxes containing folders. No other cold case in that storage room occupies more space than those related to the Laralee Spear case. A map of the area that shows the proximity of Lara Lee's school bus stop and the location of her body is on the wall above Ralph Crenshaw's desk. About 12 years ago, detectives distributed packs of playing cards to local inmate facilities. Each card included a picture of Lara Lee. Investigators hoped that an inmate would hear something or learn something about the case and feel compelled to come forward. No solid leads were generated from the cards. I asked Sergeant Paglieri what it will likely take for the case to pick up steam again. I would I would say that what the biggest break in the case will be uh, the use of technology, and I, and I keep hitting that forensic sciences, things of that nature, um, because we have we've beaten the bushes. On numerous occasions, we've we've talked to everybody around there, around the crime scene. We've talked to if there was anyone with any kind of connection whatsoever, we've explored that. Um, and at this point, it's going to come down to, like I said, forensic science stuff and how technology advances from 1994 until today, until what's going to come on down the road. Uh, and like I said before, we're exploring every avenue and some things that we're not going to talk about today because I, I, I would. If it was a foolproof thing that I can say was going to guarantee some results, then I would I would talk about it. But since we are exploring things that we don't know what's going to happen with uh, the outcome is going to be, um, that will be the biggest break. Uh, but has anything changed? Is uh, going back to the, the top of the list of, of persons of interest? Has anything come to, to light that says this person is more of a, a suspect than somebody else? No. Pete Moon was a major crimes investigator for years. He knows what it's like to have unsolved cases weighing on the mind. He's had his fair share. He's also very aware of the Lara Lee Spear case because of the impact it has had on his hometown. He described to me what it would mean for everyone involved in the case to obtain an arrest and conviction. Oh, it would be a tremendous relief on the family, the community, and the investigators. It's one of those we, you know, we prevailed yet. Yeah, took 25 years or, or even longer, but uh, to come out victorious, that would be that would be an awesome feeling for everyone. Ralph Henshaw hasn't worked as a full-time law enforcement officer in two decades. When he left the Volusia County Sheriff's Office, he had earned the rank of lieutenant. When he was invited by former Sheriff Ben Johnson to come in and help investigate the Sheriff's Office's cold cases, he eagerly agreed to do so. 
No other case has haunted him or occupied his brain like this one. It's hard for him to think about what he would do if the case ever got solved. I don't know. I'd, I'd be so ecstatic. I, I, don't, I don't know how I'd, how I'd feel about it. I, I, relief, maybe. I'd feel better about going home and telling my wife, well, you know, we, we've accomplished something that, that was important. And, and it's important, as important to my wife at home as it is to me and Steve and Sergeant Pagliari. Is that because you spent so much time on it? Maybe. Um, I just have some sort of personal feeling about her, and I have since since I came here. Actually, um, when I was asked to come here, uh, it was, sorry, I mean, Sheriff Johnson asked me. He took me in his own car down to the crime scene and showed me where it was at. I didn't know where it was at. We were hoping, and still are, that we'll solve this case. Anyone with information about the investigation into the murder of Lara Lee Spear is urged to call the Volusia County Sheriff's Office Cold Case Unit at 386-254-1535. That's 386-254-1535. Thank you for listening. Tune in next time when I will discuss another cold case, this one out of Hernando County. On May 9, 1981, the bodies of Rick Merrill and Dory Collier were found inside a burned-out car in Hernando County. The police agency that handled the case for 37 years was disbanded last year, so now the Hernando County Sheriff's Office has taken over the investigation. Among my guests for that episode will be Kelly Davidson, Merrill's sister, as well as Greg Laxton, a retired Maryland sheriff's deputy who now lives in Wikiwachi and runs a website dedicated to the case. Join us next time. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal.